There have been a number of good books, not a number, rather a few good books about boxing. Nelson Algren did a beauty that Pete Hamill just spoke about a moment ago here to me on called Never Come Morning. Uh, an occasion, another good book, but the one by Pete Hamill now called Flesh and Blood is a very excellent one, dealing with boxing, something that happens underneath, the fighter, not champs. In this case, the guy becomes almost a champ, but others, too, what it's like. It's called Flesh and Blood. It also deals with a, a relationship of a guy and his mother, a rather unusual one, deep one. It also deals with a number of things we'll talk about. Random House, the publishers, is a very exciting novel with Pete Hamill, my guest, in a moment after this message. It was you, babe. Remember that. It was you, lying there that night, before the arena had even filled, before the newsmen had left the casinos to take their seats at the press tables, before the celebrities had stepped off the charter flights from New York and L.A. and Miami Beach, before your own people had climbed out of the subways a continent away, heading for the closed-circuit theaters from their homes in Brooklyn and Queens and the high Bronx, before the Puerto Ricans had carried their, ga their cases of beer to the Academy of Music, and the Mexicans had piled out of Boyle Heights, before the pimps had assembled their women, before Harlem and Huff, Watson, Newark, and Roxbury had emptied of high rollers to scream for the other guy. Before any of it, it was you, babe, and you already knew how it would end. These are the opening passages of the book Flesh and Blood, read by Pete Hamill, the author. I think in that, in that passage, so many things. It's a changing neighborhood, a guy who knew something, this is, reflections of somebody who reached some sort of not quite mountaintop but a dream and something happened but it's got everything in it isn't it the, the changes in well i think it reflects first of all i guess that that boxing is maybe the most ethnic of all sports because it's so clear it's uh, it's one man against one man you can't break down ethnically a football team or a baseball team any team sport doesn't quite have the ethnic uh, uh, distinctions that go with boxing um, but I think it also talks about how even today people want heroes from almost any part of, of this country. They, and I think the, probably the only worldwide acknowledged hero is Obviously. a guy like Muhammad Ali. Obviously, uh, isn't he? I mean, the one, the one athlete, the one perhaps hero, the, the one more, not a baseball player or a football player, or for that matter a president, but a prize fighter, That's a right. heavyweight champion. That's right. And I think it's peculiar in, in, in Ali's case and uh, that he was also one of the very few fighters who got involved with uh, political and social issues. And I think it's no accident that uh, in the 70s, which grow increasingly apolitical, that uh, Ali is still honored for the fact that he gave up three and a half years of the best time of his life over a principle. Uh, you can quarrel with the principle, but you can't quarrel, quarrel with his decision to stick, stick with it. Boxing, you see, it, it also it deals with hunger. Now, we always think of boxing. In the early days, it was the young German guy and the Irish, there's the Irish hero in the book, but the, and then it shifted in Jewish fighters. Well, that's the black, right. I, the think you could, I think you can trace the immigration waves to the United States through the, through the boxing champions. You had the Irish were the first after boxing was legalized in the 1890s, John L. Sullivan and Jim Corbett and a lot of people, and then into the 30s, the last of the Irish fighters were McLaurin, Jimmy McLaurin and... and and Interesting, uh, they were no longer heavyweights. Billy Kahn. Because you just mentioned well, Billy Kahn. Kahn was a light heavyweight. Yeah, but, but then you mentioned middleweight and, and welter. Right. That's interesting, too. Well, in those days, because of diet and other things, most fighters were not heavyweights. The Most fighters were welterweights and middleweights. The average guy was 145 pounds in this country at a certain period. Hey, that's, period. That, you just said something, Pete. That's why your book is so good here, dealing with little nuances that 
we don't think about too much. That's interesting. There were more non-heavyweights before. There were right. the featherweights and the flyweights, of course, but also lightweights and junior welders. But there were heavyweights, but not as many as today. Is that's that what right. you're saying? I think that's absolutely true. We have today, for example, the only world champion the United States has is Ali. Most of the fighters, Mexico, for example, has more uh, licensed fighters in the United States. They also have three champions. Puerto Rico has four champions. Um, and it's because, I think, of prosperity. We have a lot of big guys, but they tend to go to play football where they can get a steady paycheck or they get really big and play so basketball. That's why California kids are bigger, too. Right. But, but I think the best fighters that probably you and I remember were all with the exception of Joe Lewis, all lighter weight guys. Sugar Ray Robinson was probably the greatest fighter who ever lived. He's 160 pounds. Today, he's 162. <laughs> but Sugar Ray was, uh, he was lightweight and welter, wasn't he? Then middle. He was, a middle. Light, he was a lightweight in the Golden Gloves, and he was so thin and skinny that he once boxed Willie Pep in the amateurs, and Willie was a featherweight. But he turned pro as a lightweight, became welterweight champion. He beat Tommy Bell in a tough fight. In your book. And uh, then middleweight champion. In your book, uh, Flesh and Flesh and the Devil, I was about to say, there's devil in it too, in a way, mammon devil. But flesh and blood, uh, Bobby Fallon, young Irish kid, is a central figure. But a reference is made, he meets this quite remarkable guy named Gus, who right. I take his model after, the actual manager. Yeah, Customato. Customato, yeah. Customato is a, I always think of him as the last Victorian in a way. He, he was a strict disciplinarian. For those who... We don't have exactly fight fans listening to this station, but for those, he was the manager of Floyd Patterson. And uh, Jose Torres. Jose Torres. And uh, an early manager of Rocky Graziano, the middleweight uh, champion who fought Tony Zale, three fights. Um, but he was, a, he was a great instructor, a great teacher. He could have, this book in a way, could have been about an opera singer or a carpenter. It's about a kid who gets the kind of gift that so few of us ever get. Someone comes along and teaches you how to do something. And Customato uh, was one of the great teachers, and he's now 70 years old. He has a couple of amateur fighters, doesn't uh, handle professionals much anymore. Uh, but I was always struck and sort of uh, in awe of him because he was so single-minded about what he did. And he was there, as my guy is in the book, uh, not just for the money. He wasn't one of the guys standing with the pearl gray hats trying to pull off a betting coup. He was there for the beauty. Uh, in a way, he was an artist uh, who practiced on humans who lived rather than on ceilings and chapels. Yeah. In, in your book, you, uh, as Bobby Fallon meets this guy Gus, Gus is reading certain books. He lives very fru uh, in a very Spartan way, and he's reading books about strategy, battle strategy, Robert E. Lee. Yeah. And in a sense, two things are happening in your book. The anger of this kid, Bobby Fallon, he speaks of the fight as war. Gus thinks of it as the strategy of battle. That's right. I, I think Gus gives him uh, memoirs by Robert E. Lee and other books because he explains to him that you just can't go in there and throw a million punches. That's not the way fighters f develop. The great fighters are like good writers or good musicians. They get more economical as they get older. It takes fewer notes to do it with and fewer words. And the great fighters use fewer punches. Well, they don't squander. Lewis, wasn't this Lewis really the phrase about Lewis? Uh, not a phrase, something. There was always more where that came from. That is just <laughs> enough to do the job. That's right. And I think also that that's not to underestimate instinct. Uh, Lewis also once said that I knew I was getting old in this business when I had to think about throwing the right hand. 
So what happens here is the, there's a kid who has the instinct. He, and one of the other fighters says it about him. He says he can't fight, but he's got the instinct. Let's so it's about, about teaching him how to fight. about this kid, Bobby Fallon. Very interesting indeed. He's a young Irish kid, and we meet him with his young black friend, Kirk, and he's full of anger. Things are happening in the world, and everybody's in this changing, but what's inside him is, is incredible anger. And uh, it's really a kind of personal anger. He's, he, there's a, a kind of a wild man inside him that's struggling to get out. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the fact that his father left when he was six years old, and he knows that the father is alive somewhere. And so that, that's part of the engine of his anger. Um, the other thing really is the, f the sense that he has no place. There is no great good place to a kid like that. He spent a lot of time as a transient moving around. That's why, for example, Studs, he can have an easy relationship with a black guy. If he had grown up in some narrow neighborhood where bigotry was uh, more common, that, that kind of friendship would have been unlikely. Uh, but the anger is there, and he, uh, the book, in a way, is about the taming of the animal inside yourself. I mean, I think all of us who came out of poverty have that, that anger. When I was 16 or 17, all I wanted to do was break heads. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't care who's, who, whose head it was. So some of the Bobby Fallon in you, then. Of course, I think in any novel yeah. you're, you're drawing a lot, if not on the literal mm -hmm. facts of your life, certainly on the emotions of your life. But it's also Bobby Fallon at a certain time. Now, the he comes back, he, he gets involved in a fight as a brawl. He and his friend, black friend, Kirk, Kirk. he deliberately goes into a place, the Shamrock, <laughs> where blacks aren't welcome. He deliberately goes in there where cops aren't. Now, why does he deliberately do that? Because, like a lot of us when we were young, <laughs> that's what you do. You want to go somewhere and say, okay, um, you want to fool around with me, you can fool around with me, and you're going to suffer for it. He's going literally to sort of provoke uh, some kind of action. It's a, kind of, it's a form of, it, of getting your muscles off, in a way, and proving that you exist. Uh, one of the things he lives with is the myth, almost mythological presence of his father, who was a tough guy in the neighborhood before leaving, a kind of legendary mythological figure almost. And uh, one of the th major thrusts of the whole book is the overcoming of that father. The father and, of course, the mother. Here, I suppose, people will say immediately the Oedipal theme, you know, theme of, of course, th this does deal with his love. We're talking about a, a flesh love for the, his yeah, mother. An incestuous, the, yeah, what becomes an incestuous Because there is an incestuous theme for it. And it's the jealousy of the old man, who apparently is quite a figure of another time, or they come across him later on. Now he works for something of a syndicate. Like he's kind of an arranger. Yeah. He's kind of sure of himself. A hot dresser, flashy dresser, good dancer, fast talker, a nice roll of fresh money in his pocket all the time. And admirable in a way, mm -hmm. studs. I mean, guys like that. I think we saw them in all the neighborhoods of this country. Chicago produced dozens of them. Um, they weren't in the mob particularly, but they were connected. They knew the guys there, and they were trustworthy. Um, they wouldn't go out and, and uh, kill a guy for you, but uh, they kept their, their silence. They uh, would go out, and they could handle legitimate or illegitimate action for you, 
And in a way, we lived by a code that you you had to admire in it. And some peculiar way. There's one guy I know called Doc. And Tanya Doc says, "Well, I was sort of an independent contractor." <laughs> I said, "How did you hear at the time of the Capone and the Bugs Marie?" "Yeah, but I was an independent contractor." <laughs> <laughs> well, I it's true. There were a lot of yeah. those kind of guys, and and Jack Fallon, yeah. I think, was there were guys like that in my neighborhood who who knew them all. They knew the Joey Gallo and they knew the Persico brothers and they knew some of the Bananas mob and so on. But they weren't of them. They knew them. Of course, you come back to a description of, of excellent, the bar description of guys now lives are pretty mm, uneventful and rough and frustrating and they're watching in one instance pro football. Right. And expecting him, him in this case, Namath, to do something he can no longer do. Right. Well, in this case, it was it was a kind of Joe Namath yeah. uh, character, a guy uh, who, like a prize fighter, and that's the reason for the scene, is that we rent athletes so that they can perform acts of courage that we're not capable of. We rent a prize fighter. We pay the money to go to the arena or the theater. We rent the... Uh, individual football players, mostly quarterbacks, because we can we identify with them more careful, more more cleanly and more specifically. But sometimes they can't do it anymore, and that's an early sort of bong that at yeah. some point Bobby's and not so, going to be able to do so it either. It's, it, this, in in a way, this sort of presages uh, that something happened to Bobby. We get almost to the top and they're not quite do it exactly, and look down upon. But as it's the development of this fighter too, and you you have. The craft in here, too, the descriptions. Perhaps we could read some of those as Gus is teaching him. But Gus, first of all, wants to make sure this guy's not a bum. He means yes. a bum not only in the sense of the ring, just a bum. Well, I think... Talks toxin doesn't. What, it, what I think it comes down to, Studs, is character. You know, he's looking to make sure that this kid has the character to be a fighter. Well, you can take a, a kid who's 160 pounds, is built beautifully, uh, can jab, can throw the right hand, can dance, can move, and he's not Ray Robinson. And the great mystery is why. Uh, and I think a lot of that comes from mysterious qualities, character, heart, uh, the ability to sustain punishment and keep on coming. If you hit him with baseball bats, they'd keep coming at you, you know, and that, there's something about that in Bobby that he wants to understand. He, he senses something in him. He, he, it's also the craftsman, this guy Gus, or, or the, the, the strategist, trying to channel the anger, plus whatever there is in right. Bobby, the gallantry, trying to channel it into right. an art, into a craft. And to build a guy uh, up over a period of time. I mean, we're seeing a period now in boxing that, that re reminds me sometimes of journalism. Kids right out of the Olympics, uh, which is the you know graduate school of the amateurs, go into television fights after three or four fights. Kids like Sugar Ray Leonard and uh, Leon Spinks, and while they're very good fighters, will never find out how good they are because they're never going to have the the opportunity to go somewhere to be bad studs. And many writers, for example, came out of the 60s right into newspapers, and then got in trouble because they didn't know how to cover a homicide or a fire. They didn't know how to do the kind of mechanical things that build up your skill and your confidence and your sense you know, of... Just as you're saying, that we come to the matter of journalists and one you, ad you admire very much, how the similarity, the, the analogy here applies of a certain skill and grace and craft that comes out of the work. In watching some of these fights on television, <coughs> they come from a certain place in Las Vegas, the area you know very well and talk about, and some hot shots around the ring watching them, and rarely, every now and then, rarely you hear, you hear of a 
men I admire very much, you, Nelson Aldrich, still go to these neighborhoods of fight rings. They're rare. Where in the old days, people from neighborhoods came, from around right. the old time guys watching, guys would hang around the gym would watch. But here you got these hot shots watching. Millions may see it on television, but yeah. the kid is put up there as a starlet, sort of. Exactly. Without any previous training. Exactly. Without any seasoning. Without, seasoning. without uh, it's the problem actors have, uh, too, that they don't have a place actors, to be bad. Yeah. They, don't, they don't have a place to get the, the obvious stuff out of this system. And I think that's uh, sad to see some of these guys sitting in Vegas, and there's a lot of guys in Victor Mon suits and pinky rings all sitting around watching uh, and having a good time for an evening. And this kid who might end up uh, a superb fighter handled right, He's going to have his life thwarted by that. You can't get knocked out in your 10th fight and expect to be a, a champion uh, later on. You have to have somewhere where you handle rough guys and tough guys and boxers and dancers and southpaws, and you don't get that uh, very much anymore in boxing, mainly because there's not that much of it in the country. There's not that many arenas, those small clubs that, you, and that Nelson Norgren wrote about better than anybody are almost all gone, sort of killed by television. Uh, the habit of going out at night in cities is dying as the, as the country becomes blander and franchises take over the United States and every city looks like every other city. Uh, and I think that's a sad thing and a, and a loss in a way. For all its brutality, boxing was also a sport which gave the children of immigrants a sense of identity. You know, they identified with the kid with the shamrock or the Star of David on his trucks. Uh, now I think it's blurred out quite a bit, and the only one we have is Ali, and it'll be a pretty empty room when he leaves. So it's become what? It's funny. If it's an there anachronism, Studs. There is. Yeah, go ahead. It is an anachronism, and I, that's, I consciously wanted to deal with that. My fighter as an Irish kid is an anachronism within an anachronism. Mm -hmm. um, he's the only, one of the few white kids in jail at the beginning of the book. He's the only white kid in the gym. And I think the reason for that goes back to what we talked about earlier, that you know, white kids now can, they don't have to bleed for $40 for four rounds. They can join the Iron Workers Union. Not in New York anymore, but they can do it in Houston. They can move around. They can make good money as construction workers. They can go to college. Um, the third generation has a piano in the living room and that create, and votes Republican. That's a different kind of Irishman from the ones we're talking about earlier. This kid is a throwback, and I think that's what Gus recognizes when he sees him come walk in prison the first time. He said, what is this kid doing here? And then talks to him a little bit about it. And if decides that if he has the character and if he can teach him the mechanical parts, of it, which are always easier to teach than the uh, more profound things, uh, he could make a champion out of it. See, what's good about the book Flesh and Blood is precisely this, because it does deal with an aspect of prison. When he, after the fight, he and his black friend Kirk have in the saloon, they're tossed in the pokey, and there's a good description of it. Do you know Ken Jackson at the Fortune Society? I know who he is. Ken I Jackson. don't know Well, Ken he describes, himself. it's funny, uh, this is by way of paying you a tribute for the way you describe prison life. He was describing it to me the other day, and it's, you, you're on the button. Well, I talked you're to some cons that yeah. I know, and yeah. you know, and they gave me, particularly on the on language and so on, what people talk about now. Because Kenny was, uh, he was in from the age of 13 on. He, he, 
he, he was he had a million dollar burger when he was thirteen. He tells it so funny. He's thirteen, fourteen year old kid. We toss money around, buy everybody drinks. Did anybody ever question you? No one questioned us. No one questions a guy spending money. And they and they had hookers join him, hundred dollar call girls. They were thirteen, fourteen. But he describes a scene when he was in when he first was arrested. Most were whites in prison, and now blacks. And he's describing the change in the mores right. of it. And you have an anachronism here, as you say. You have right. this white kid at the center who's a fighter, who's being cheered by the others, because he's representing them now. Right. Well, he as comes a in initially. Starts. He comes in that mo- that moment that scares almost every young guy when he goes to jail. Is that there's an existing society there that he can't control. And it's made up of cliques. There's a, the blacks are often broken into a Muslim clique or a Southside clique or a Bronx clique. The Puerto Ricans break, uh, I mean, the Latin kids break down into Puerto Ricans or, or Cubans. Uh, if you're in the mob, connected in any way with the mob, that's another separate clique. There's a gay clique, usually of some kind. And when you're walking in, you have to choose sides fairly quickly. Kirk understands immediately what to do. By the third day, he has a rap uh, and yeah. throws in with the Muslims and has himself a rap. Um, Bobby, though, makes himself autonomous by knocking out the toughest fighter in the uh, in the gymnasium, and that cre- sets him aside free of all cliques and breaks down a certain prison that he might have ended up in yeah. inside the prison. Yeah. And out he comes later. And now, in the meantime, there's a there's a guy, that guard, who's a nice guy, who's a trainer, and they sense Ernie Thompson, they sense right. in, in Bobby. And that's when he first knows the fighter, when Gus, the man who becomes his manager, brings a group of kids in, some Latino, Puerto Rican right. kids, to fight them. And he, he becomes the hero of the fellow inmates in that he knocks out the visiting kid. But then there's a beautiful description of this kid. Is it Munoz? What's that first Munoz, kid? right. Munoz, who suddenly is... Hurt, but they become friends. Right, because the kid, the kid comes in and he's and like a lot of amateur kids, he's he's full of dash and flash, and he's got more talent than uh, uh, than genius. I mean, he just does it with speed, and he boxes like Ali, and Bobby dumps him pretty much. But later on, when he gets out of jail and goes to the gym, one of the first guys he sees is Munoz, and Munoz, like a lot of fighters, uh, when they're in their relations with each other, is essentially a gentle kid. I mean, he, he says, uh, you know, if there's anything you need, you know, just ask, essentially. By the way, what's very good about it is, uh, is also the description of the gym. The description of the gym that Gus runs, right. that now Bobby's attending to learn to be a fighter. And there's a marvelous sequence here in which Gus wants to make sure this kid is serious. Uh, but the description of the fighters and what yeah. they're doing and the training and a couple of the family people, the women watching, the, the Latin women right. watching the kid. That's the old Gramercy gym on 14th Street, a couple of doors from Luchow's, and it's still there. It's still in operation with a lot of the same kinds of kids and the same kinds of women. Uh, Jose Torres, when he used to box there, was always kind of perhaps lackadaisical. You should, perhaps you should mention, you mentioned Jose Torres. Who's yeah. really, perhaps a word about Jose Torres. Torres is um, probably my closest friend. We've been friends for 20 years, and he was one of the greatest amateurs. He went to the finals in the 1956 uh, uh, Olympics. Light, was he lightheaded? He was a middleweight, and he, middleweight. Bo- he lost in the finals to Laszlo Papp, who was a southpaw in his third Olympics from Hungary, uh, one of those professional Iron Curtain fighters. Um, and then he went on to become light heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, around the same time, I got my column. <laughs> so we used to kid around. We lived together. We had an apartment and stuff. 
Uh, and he's the guy that taught me more than anybody else uh, about what it was like inside the head of a fighter. And this particular gym, the Gramercy, is where we all sort of hung out. I had boxed when I was a kid and stopped from like 15 to 19 and stopped for the same reasons Bobby, uh, problems Bobby had. I was the wrong size. I was between light heavyweight and real heavyweight. Uh, Jose, when women would show up at the gym to watch another fighter, that's when he turned it on. <laughs> you know, that, that there is a quality in fighters of wanting to show off. You want to yeah. show to millions of people how good you are, and sometimes you just want to show off yeah. to two girls standing in yeah. the back of the gym. And I think fighters today are doing exactly the same thing in gyms all over the country. Talking to Pete Hamill, the book is Flesh and Blood, and it's published by Random House, and it's a, it reads like a house of fire. It's good for out loud reading, too, so perhaps we'll have Pete do some readings from the book, some descriptions here. And the, it builds, by the way, it builds to a very powerful climax. More of this in a moment after this message. So resuming the conversation with Pete Hamill, the book Flesh and Blood, published by Random House. Perhaps you'd read, you're describing the ring. I'm looking for uh, something I marked here in one of these spots in which Gus Caputo was talking, the manager, who's now his manager, talking to Bobby Fallon about the technique, giving him tips, maybe page 110. And it's, uh, it becomes exciting because we're talking about a craft, aren't you? Right here, perhaps, you might start reading that in any way you feel like. And it's good for out loud. Um, Gusk is uh, waiting for Bobby at one of the heavy bags, and he has hand tapes draped over his neck. Uh, he whipped them off in a quick little movement and walked over to me. You know how to put these on? He said. Sure, I said. He stood there, hands on hips, watching me bandage the left hand the way I had learned to do it in jail. His face wrinkled, and he stopped me and unwound the bandage. Lesson number one, he said. Don't say you can do something if you can't. Wrap a bandage that way and some night you'll break your wrist. If you don't know what you're doing, ask me. That's why I'm here. He started wrapping the hand over, under, through the fingers, around the wrist. When he finished, I flexed the left hand, making a fist that felt like a mace. I had to laugh. Try the right hand, he said. I tried and botched it, and Gus had to do it all over again. Then he had me unwrap both tapes and wrap them again, once, twice, three times. If I was off a quarter inch, he made me start again. In this gym, Gus said, you do everything over until you do it right. What is this, school, I said? Yeah, and you're in kindergarten. Now put those bag gloves on and work three rounds on the heavy bag. I want to fight one of these guys. Yeah? I always start a workout with boxing, I said. You won't box for a while. Why not, I said. You're going to walk before you run, bum. That's why not. You think you know something about boxing, but you got more to unlearn before you can learn to do anything right. Yeah, okay, I said. And that's the beginning. <laughs> that's a, later on. That's lesson one. Lesson one. Later He's on. He's in kindergarten. Later on, you have the actual descriptions of the fights that are very good. You, you mentioned earlier, you are talking about writers you like. You mentioned Olger and his description of fights that never come running. Right. There's a great... Well, a, the book opens with yeah. a fantastic scene of... Uh, a sports writer walking into an arena, and before he can get his raincoat off, there's a knockout, and he's yeah, looking up yeah. into the eyeballs of some yeah. of the hero, as it turns out, who gets flattened in the first. But also, what I like what you have here, and aside from Bobby Fallon, his feelings, the the thoughts of the other boxers he beats along the road, the black and the white guys and the Puerto Rican guys, and that's something in them. Something is lost. Aside from being knocked out, there's something else that's. 
You break a little, a little hope yeah. is broken. I mean, boxers, in a way, are, are the last romantics. I mean, they do think that just through the force of will and, and, and physique that they can become famous in the entire world. And there's so many examples that you can't blame them for the romanticism. But, but every once in a while, someone has their number. And uh, they begin to understand that as they get mature. The, and that's why I think fighters are also very gentle in a way. They know that uh, they don't have to prove anything about their manhood. They don't go around saloons beating up drunks to show how tough they are. Uh, and they also know that somewhere, someplace, there's a guy who can probably lick them. Yeah. Uh, the problem is getting through a career without facing that guy, whoever that might be. Everybody, everyone had one. Robinson knew there were guys around. He had a, a policeman, as a matter of fact. He had another fighter in George Gainford's stable who would go around and fight the guys Robinson didn't want to fight. <laughs> George Gainford was the manager of Robinson, wasn't he? Right. He, yeah. was, he was the trainer and manager. And uh, he, had, he once said a wonderful thing. He said, in the beginning, fighters boxed for, um, for watches and plaques and medals. Then they want to fight uh, on, on top at the garden. And when they fight on top of the garden, they want to fight for the championship. And then when they win the championship, they fight for medals and watches mm. and plaques. Yeah. You know, it, it always comes, that sense of coming full circle, that in the end, you're really fighting more for the honor than the money, for the in, praise and the yeah. sense of identity to defeat obscurity. In Gus, this guy, you also have a study of manner, a certain kind of manner, in contrast to, what, the syndicate figure, the guy who was there representing uh, Las Vegas, or whatever it might right. be representing, the individual. Yeah, guy. the guys that see boxing only as a way to get either television ratings or to make a big score or to get, uh, you don't have so much the gambling coup kind of thing anymore, the old days when Frankie Carbo and a few other guys really ran boxing, and there were dumps in the 40s and 50s. You don't have much of that anymore, but, and my book is set in the, in the present or just the immediate future. Uh, but you do have, I think, the manipulation of, uh, of fights in a different way. For example, CBS uh, has four fighters under contract right now. It's unlikely that CBS will match them against someone who might knock them off any more than they would have, they would put a program on that would knock Carol O'Connor out of the box, who's one of their, you know, stable. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a kind ABC of ABC had a scandal recently. And ABC had a, had a similar scandal. It was, it was different because ABC did not directly have the fighters under contract, but Don King was under contract to ABC, and he had the fighters under contract. So th that kind of stuff can lead to suspicion. And one of the things that's important about boxing is that we have to believe it's real. We have to believe that it's not rehearsed, that there's no people going in the tank, there's no setups being put together. Sometimes there's setups that are just based on sheer talent. I remember obviously. a time I've interviewed a fight and I think it was Johnny Brown. It's okay. He he became a preacher later on, Christopher, a black preacher. He's one of the guys that died. There was a young fighter named Chuck Davy, came to the University of Michigan, a South Pole, and he was the, the great white hope. College kid and all. And later on it comes out. It comes out later on. All the guys were taking dives for Chuck well, it wasn't only was this Johnny Brown. Some of them were t some of them were taking dives. Some of them uh, Davy actually did beat, but then Davy came up against a real fighter who had didn't have the handcuffs on named Kid Gavilon, and Gavilon wrecked him. Of course. Yeah. So we're talking about uh, a world in which you know, this one figure, the changing world, a world of so much 
insecurity, bewilderment, confusion. Somebody looking for clarity, too. And that's Absolutely. Bobby Fallon. And recognition. He's, he's, he's really saying, hey, look at me as he goes to this tavern, one that you've gone to in New Greenwich Village where the Clancy brothers are. And there's a girl with a tape recorder. <laughs> and she ignores me. So one day, he yeah. says to her, to himself, that is, one day you're going to want me. You're going to come around here and you're going to want the Clancy Brothers playing uh, at my fights and you're going to want to interview me and I'm not going to be available, is really what he was saying to himself. Because he wanted that. I think uh, a, lot of, a lot of kids and a lot of ordinary people want to be known to other people. They want their existence verified. I think it's a, not a healthy thing particularly starts that. This whole notion that if you're not a star in the society, you're somehow worthless is idiotic. I mean, a guy that builds a a building or can make a great piece of furniture is just as much a star in what he does than uh, as a fighter is or a rock musician. Uh, but it's understandable. I mean, I think you go and you, you look at a kid like this who really is nothing. I mean, he comes from obscurity. And he does suddenly begin to understand that he might have a possible passport out of this, and that's called boxing. And so he throws himself into it in a different way. I mean, not a way to get easy time in prison, which meant that you didn't have to do any of the work and you could go to the gym and not be bothered by the different cliques, but where you could really suddenly become a known person in this world. And so he's becoming, now he's becoming known bit by bit uh, through the guidance, with the guidance of Gus and his own instinct as well as talents and gift, and that anger still there. He's now knocking guys out, and he's going to turn pro. And he's knocking out a variety. Here again, each one of them becomes an interesting figure. Uh, whether it's, uh, his Italian kid, the Italian rooting for a guy named Carmine. Yeah, right. And it was a good, good-natured kid, but not, right. didn't have a ghost of a chance. Yeah, one of those kids, you know, as you, that you see in the Golden Gloves uh, studs, who are the toughest guy in the corner, but really can't fight. I mean, they, you know, they're well built and they're a little berserk, maybe or tough or whatever, and they can. They're the tough guy, but they're not. They this don't belong Carmine. in the same ring. That was <laughs> the people from the community loved Carmine. He, they thought he's going to be next. Uh, of course, Graciano, next to Marciano. Of course, we all had guys like that in our neighborhoods. But then he gets clobbered. Then there's a guy named Shotgun Taylor. Now, 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 Bobby Fallon is being recognized. He's the Irish hope. Now you've got the same guys at the bar who were sore at that foot couldn't make it. Now they got somebody to cling to. That's right. He suddenly um, becomes the vessel for all their. Uh, fantasies about themselves. He's not just uh, knocking out individual fighters, he's affirming their existence in a way. They come on and they, they're, they're in that caravan too. They're, they're knocking people out in their heads. Because if he could do it, they could do it. But throughout you have this other strain running in the book and that's his looking <coughs> to search for the old man, search exactly. for the father and of course his feelings, guilt is there naturally, guilt. Uh, Which he can't express, groups, yeah. except uh, physically. He, if you notice studs, I mean, he, there's no long self-examinations of conscience. There's, a, although there is an aspect of conscience in the book, but he, what he tends to do when he is frustrated is to go in and take it out on the heavy bags on the sparring partners. He'll go piling into people to the point where Gus has to lay him off a couple of times. He's just he's uh, punishing himself and punishing his body while he's punishing other people in the gymnasium, which is not what he's there yeah. for. Um, and it's dealing with that, with that anger, taming that, that uh, wildness in himself that, that the book begins to move into. You said the theme is the, the, taming about a, the taming of a wildness, and there's several uh, people taking a whack at it. One, of course, is Gus. Right. 
the mother doesn't quite understand. She senses it, obviously. And there's this father whom he eventually finds. And it's interesting how he finds his father's operator. Now, now we're building up. Now he's recognized as the cool young Irish kid, no expression on his face, and he, Ring Magazine is now featuring him. Yeah, he's the prospect of the month, and then he starts to get rated, you know, down in the ratings, and it's, and he becomes uh, suddenly the hot fighter around for one reason, he's white. Uh, just like Jerry Quarry and Joey Archer and people like that got a lot more out of their careers uh, than their talent should have uh, allowed for. Uh, a white fighter in today's market is a hot property, so the big instinct then is to push him ahead fast. And Gus, who wants to make a masterpiece out of this fighter, is holding back. He's reining him in. He says, "Wait a minute! You still don't know how to fight southpaws, or you don't know how to, you don't have that much mileage on your boy. Hold it. Stay back. Do what I do. I'm the manager. You're the fighter." And so they're going to places like uh, Newark, Ohio and fighting for $38 and change when other fighters are whizzing past him, guys that started out at the same time he did, including one fighter who becomes the kind of Sonny Liston yeah, figure. He, that's the eventual, that's the big fight. It comes out, what, uh, Walker, Walker North. No, Walker Lewis. Walker, Walker Lewis. Lewis. Walker I Lewis. originally called him Walker Smith, which was Ray Robinson's real name. <laughs> and I had to change it. We're coming to now uh, the... You say he's the building of a good craftsman and artist in contrast to the others who pushed along. But now we come to the big money. Now, since he's the white fighter becoming maybe the champ, maybe going to fight this Walker Lewis eventually. But he wants to, Now there's guys who recognize him as a valuable piece of property. Now exactly. Now property. And now comes the Las Vegas crowd. Exactly. And that basically... Uh, is the thing that most of those young fighters are now thrown into. You, go, you get in and suddenly the money is staggering with television satellites and worldwide um, sales of in the theaters. The money is staggering. Nobody ever made that kind of money with boxing before. And they're interested in the money. Gus is interested in the masterpiece. And Bobby, once he realizes his father is involved in this thing, is torn. He's been looking for this man for years, and suddenly the man has shown up, and he's part of the promotion. He's the middleman really brought in for, as this, the outside contractor to convince Bobby to take the fight against um, the, the Liston-type character, the great, big, tough, also a con, uh, who... Gus thinks is probably too good for Bobby at this point. He can't tell Bobby that. He doesn't want Bobby, who's 182 pounds, to go in against a 220-pound guy who can really fight that soon. A year, a year and a half later, sure. But he wants that experience, and, and uh, for a variety of reasons, which the book deals with, he, he ends up in the fight anyway. But the others, the others, and you have a good description of them, too. Well, throughout the book, obviously, the others there now, they're an industry. Uh, the, exactly. He's got the Las Vegas guys. They want it now because it's... Uh, well, to them, to them, a fighter is not a masterpiece or a human being even. They're, a fighter is a commodity, you know, to be put on television or in a theater, to be sold for a certain amount of money or to sell a certain amount of products. And since this kid has gotten more publicity and is the hot, really hot fighter around, and the guy he's fighting is the really hot black fighter around, uh, show business requirements are putting them together. But... Gus doesn't want that. Gus doesn't want 
to throw him into that fight, not yet. So this is the other aspect of it, of this book. The other theme is that show business, industry, the fast buck, big bucks, and guys, the entrepreneurs, as against the artist. Yeah, the, the craftsman, the, the old craftsman. the old craftsman, and, and we can see it in all kinds of other areas of our life, uh, studs, as you know. You look around and, and the, the quick, shoddy apartment house is thrown up, and the old Italian who was a stone carver who used to decorate our buildings uh, is no longer with us. Nobody knows how to do that even anymore. The old ornamental iron worker has vanished because it's cheaper to throw up Japanese steel uh, and cover it with a sheet of glass. Yeah. So I'm in many ways he becomes a, that aspect of the book is a kind of a metaphor for other things in the society. Yeah. You know, the moving ahead so quickly that, that things of genuine quality can often be damaged and hurt and harmed. In the and a while process. ago you were saying, you know, at, at the, what's happening, the, the homogenization of things, the blending, you can't tell one city from the next because of the franchise play for the McDonald's or Arby's or or Kentucky Fried, or the Holiday Hotels, or the Mar whatever that, it's all the same. Even the road signs, yeah. that, every, there's some guy that makes those white on green signs, he's gotta be the, the sign czar of the United States. Every, yeah. Even pulling into a town is not like it was 20 years ago when I used to hitchhike on And there. even perhaps the change in his father, Jack Fallon, that's why I was looking for something in your book, I couldn't find the page. Your mother's, your mother's, that's interesting, your mother's description, <laughs> Bobby's mother's description, Kate, her name is, she's quite an interesting figure herself, by the way. We should talk a little she's about pivotal. her. Uh, here's a very attractive woman who has to get along to survive. Right. And uh, her son loves her in every way. And as now and then different guys are with her. The one guy he's most jealous of is the father, Jack Fallon. He knows he's he's the number one guy. But throughout, there's a guy named Charlie stays with her. Charlie's not a bad guy. Right. Charlie's nothing to do with his mother sexually. He just stays with her. Yeah. He's like having an overcoat on the couch. You know, he's a he's just one of those sweet sort of neighborhood guys in his fifties who never got married and never will, and uh, is there while Bobby's in jail. Bobby goes to jail when he comes back. Uh, this guy's staying at the house, and he's not quite sure what's going on here, and obviously nothing is going on. Uh, but what happens to Bobby is that the obsession with his father, which is much more real to him than uh, what happens with his mother, leads him to, first of all, um, attempt to overthrow his father, to replace him, to become his father. And there's a sequence in the book after he really... Um, shows that he can really fight at one of the Golden Gloves fights after he's been hit and hurt and still comes back and can fight, uh, in which his mother is waiting for him outside the arena. And it ends. they end up in a place called the Caton Inn, which was where she had first met uh, Jack Fallon, the father, years before. And she tries to explain to the young man what it was like to see him for the first time. Why don't you read that? She, she's describing... <laughs> She's describing uh, his yeah. father to him, her, her husband. Yeah, her voice changes, softens, grows timid, becoming even younger. And this is her talking. He was wearing a dark blue suit and a light blue shirt. His tie was striped. He had a handkerchief in his breast pocket. And when he lifted his drink and looked into the back to see who was here, I saw a light shining on his cufflinks. He had on black shoes that were polished like patent leather. And I thought to myself, I got to have him. 
The boy, Bobby, then looks over at the arch in the, between the bar and the back room and imagines his father standing there in his dark blue suit and his polished shoes and his glittering cufflinks. The little girl's voice continued. This is his mother talking now. This place was always crowded then, every booth, the dance floor packed, the bar a madhouse. They had four bartenders out there and a couple of waiters in the back. I didn't know how to meet them. Girls just didn't ask guys to dance in those days. They were supposed to sit around and look pretty and not come on too strong because they would call you a whore if you did. But I was 16 and what the hell did I know? I just watched them standing over there and saw them nodding to different guys as they came in. Never saying very much, just nodding and sipping his drink and looking from time to time into the back. And so I went up to the jukebox and put a quarter in and played a couple of songs and asked him if he wanted to play a few. He looked at me and laughed and said, how old are you, kid? I said I was 20 and he laughed again. So I said, hey, what's so funny? And he said, kid, 16 gets you 30. And he walked away to the bar to refill his drink. Well, I wasn't about to let the son of a gun get away that easy, so I played three more songs. They were six for a quarter then, and just waited in his spot under the arch with my arms folded. When he came back, I said to him, you got one more chance, big boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I also heard a description, of course, of what it does to Bobby. See, the guy, Jack Fallon, the father, is right, someone absolutely sure of himself. Absolutely. But at the end, he is owned. This is the point. Even he, he becomes property. He is owned by those guys. He's trying to fix it. So... It's done prematurely against the advice of Gus, his manager. He's matched against Walker, Lewis, and this is the big fight. And Gus is now out. And Gus has left because Gus, not only doesn't he approve of it, he doesn't want to see it either. Yeah, but his father is known. There's a description of the fight. I don't think he's giving things away. Just to read uh, what happened in that one round of that fight sure. that happens. It's, it's a, this is... Uh, throughout that description, but this is one that... Is yeah, the bell rings comes, for the first now round. Comes the, Gus is out, and here he is, against the advice of this guy. By this time, his father's part of this group, but so is his, old, his young black friend, Kirk. Kirk He's is, also... Has gone where the power he's is. Has gone where the power and is. And where the future this is. is basically you know. what Kirk was thinking about all the time. You were jammed, rushed, and then lifted. You fell, and you were lifted again. You threw punches, a roar and you were moving again, a shock, and one eye was sticky, the lid gluey with blood, and you punched, and a scream came from somewhere, and there was another roar, and you saw Walker Lewis on his back, and you thought you had won, leaped in the air, and then were moved again, lifted, shocked, and then emptied of air, vomit gagging you, and a film of red covered your other eye, and then lights were in your eyes, a roar, silence, a roar, silence, and you were looking at Kirk, sponging at your face, and he was crying, and Freddie was reaching in, and there were other faces, the referee, a doctor, cops. Walker Lewis, who said something and tapped you with a glove and turned away, and then you knew you had lost. You were carried through crowds and down tunnels, the lids of your eyes sticky again. People shouted at you, and someone called you a bum, and someone else shouted, next time, next time. And they had you in the dressing room, and you felt pain over the eyes again, and looked up during a clear moment and saw that the doctor was stitching you. There were a lot of colors, reds, orange, a magenta, then a cool sponge on your face, soft voices, murmurs. You know, I was thinking as you read that, uh, Pete, and I guess only someone who's in the ring who has to can really have that experience. We watch it on television, or those who at times may have watched Fighters in the Flesh. Uh, you see this beating, you don't know exactly what this feeling is, do you, inside? 
Well, it's the strangest thing. I've been knocked down a couple of times when I was a kid, you know, once with a two-by-four and once boxing. And the now you, well, you, Pardon me, were you thinking once, you mentioned earlier, you were thinking once of possibly being a fighter. No, I never I really never, thought no. of that. I just did it because everybody yeah. did. Yeah. It was a fighter's neighborhood more because there was no tennis courts and there was, <laughs> nobody had skis and uh, <laughs> football equipment cost too much. It was one of those kind of neighborhoods. So a lot of kids went to be fighters and some of them made it. Um, but the odd thing about being knocked out is that it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. There's no pain. Uh, it's like a dislocation, a short circuit. Uh, I described it somewhere as being like a film where some of the frames have been cut out. You know, you're, you're moving along, you're jabbing, you're moving, you're jabbing, and boom, you're somewhere else in the ring. And a lot of fighters, Gene Fulmer, when he was knocked out by Robinson, uh, just stood there and asked his manager, what happened, Marv? And Marv said, they counted 11. And he didn't remember the punch getting hit. He wasn't hurt. He was just short-circuited. And I think there it was an attempt from the inside to get inside the fighter's consciousness as he's on the receiving end of something, uh, something that sports writers can't do and I think something that movies can't do because you're always looking through a camera. Uh, it's one of the great strengths of the novel is to be able to do things that can't be photographed, that can only happen on a printed page inside someone's head. And so we're talking about Flesh and Blood, Pete Hamill's book. Uh, toward the end, there is a reunion with Gus. It's as though the guy has been there. Bobby's been there. He says, that's not it. And still, you've got to start the slow process of becoming the craftsman again. Right. Yeah. Mainly because, uh, I mean, I think of it as a happy ending if there's such a thing. Um, before the championship fight, he has to, he has a confrontation with his father. The last thing he does is knock his father down. That's the key, that's the climax That's of the, the catharsis book. too, isn't that's it? That's the thing. Uh, he then is free. Being a fighter, after all, is not the most important thing in the world, and no more than being a writer or a radio broadcaster or anything. That's, those are not the really bottom line important things in the world. For this kid, growing up is the important thing. And growing up in this world begins with running away from home. You have to become autonomous. You have to become yourself. He is now free to do that at the end. He's surrendered his obsessions and in a way conquered the, the great mysteries that have plagued him through all of his youth. He now knows that his father is immortal, not a myth. He's not Zeus on some mountain somewhere. He's not even Robert Mitchum. He's just mm -hmm. another guy. The and you can hit him laid. and knock him down. And the ghost is gone. The ghost is yeah, laid. And now, and now he can begin. So he's lying on the beach at Malibu where he's driven after the fight in Vegas. And Gus comes to find him. And he looks out and he starts looking at the girls walking on the beach. And Gus says, come on, you want some eggs? And he said, yeah. And they leave. So w whether he becomes a fighter, continues as a fighter, is almost immaterial. Yeah. Uh, he's a man now. Discovery. He's free to be a human being. Yeah. And that's what the whole point of the book is. In a way, really. it's about liberation. In a way. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Flesh and Blood is the book by Pete Hamill, my guest. And Random House, the publishers, and it's available and very exciting. And I think let's end with, I know you like the Clancy Brothers, and they're mentioned somewhere in the book as you go. Let's have a song. Which one of those would you like as sort of a coda for our conversation? Well, the one I use in the, in the book is Isn't It Grand Boys, which is a wonderful sort of Irish approach to a funeral. It's a lot of people looking at death in, I think, the healthiest possible way. 
by celebrating it as another part of life. And so we hear it. And thank you very much, Pete. Thanks, Studs. Look at the coffin with golden handles. Isn't it grand, boys, to be bloody well dead? Let's not have a sniffle. Let's have a bloody good cry. And always remember the longer you live. The sooner you'll bloody well die Look at the flowers All bloody withered Isn't it grand, boy To be bloody well dead Let's not have a sniffle Let's have a bloody good cry Always remember the longer you live, the sooner you'll bloody well die. Look at the mourners, bloody great hypocrites. Isn't it grand, boys, to be bloody well dead? Let's not have a sniffle. Let's The preacher, bloody nice fellow, isn't it grand, boys, to be bloody well dead? Let's not have a sniffle, let's have a bloody good cry, and always remember the Sooner you'll bloody well die Now look at the widow Bloody great female Oh, isn't it grand, boys To be bloody well dead Let's not have a sniffle Let's have a bloody good cry And always Sooner you'll bloody well die